One of the things that I see is that we've really equipped ourselves with the narratives that we need to sustain those choices today. And it's been so interesting to me to see how DDT, which has been banned for decades, um, and which young people today, probably most of them haven't even heard of, is still used as this example of how scientists got it wrong in the past so they can't be trusted in the present. And this is one of these stories that brings us to the point where we are today. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Sixty years ago this week, author Rachel Carson published the landmark book Silent Spring. In it, she argued that pesticides, especially DDT, were poisoning people and the environment and that the chemical industry was spreading disinformation to profit from this environmental disaster. Silent Spring inspired the environmental movement and led to the banning of DDT in 1972. But today, DDT is back, thanks in part to industry disinformation. Author Elena Koenig argues that the current anti-science movement, including anti-vaxxers, climate deniers, and COVID skeptics, has its roots in efforts by industry and right-wing think tanks to cast doubt on science. Koenig is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley in the Graduate School of Journalism. She is the author of Vaccine Nation, and her newest book is How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT. Professor Elena Konis, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. You know, they say you should not judge a book by its cover, but I just can't stop looking at the cover of your book, How to Sell a Poison. It is a picture of a woman in a 1950s or 60s era bathing suit, sipping a drink, holding a burger in her hand, engulfed in a cloud of smoke. Can you explain what this image is? Yes, I definitely can. And it's interesting that you said 50s or 60s. That's definitely what the image looks like. But this is a photo taken of a model named Kay back in the year 1948. And it appeared in what looked like an article in Life magazine, which at the time was one of the most widely read magazines in the US. And in this image, this model, who's probably in her, I don't know, maybe 20s or so, is, as you said, wearing this bathing suit, eating her lunch, surrounded in this cloud of mist, smoke, it looks like to us today. At the time, though, this photo appeared in an article, what appeared to be an article, about a new chemical called DDT. And this chemical was being described as a wonder chemical, a miracle chemical that could protect homes from unwanted pests. It could protect environments from annoying insects. And it was also described as something that would protect American agriculture and protect American public health by killing insects that destroyed crops and that spread disease and also those that just sort of bothered us, everything from ants in the kitchen to cockroaches and fleas on the dog. Um, so in this image, we see this, this woman who is surrounded by this chemical 
And the article was communicating the wonders of this chemical because it was going to, the promise was, make post-war American life safer, more healthy, more productive. And it's interesting that this photo was taken in 1948. This is a few years after the Second World War in which DDT was first used and used only by the US Army to protect troops. After the war, DDT came home and was sold to the American public in all kinds of ways, including through things that appeared to be articles, but in this case, this article was actually um, <laughs> ad content produced by a DDT fog mister, a manufacturer of machines that misted DDT over parks, beaches, playgrounds, et cetera. And they wanted Americans to buy uh, this new technology, whole cloth to, in their, in their minds, keep Americans healthier, safer, and more productive. So say something, I mean, there's also kind of a seductive and sexy quality to this, which is what is so kind of jarring. Like what, what are they trying to sell? How does that relate to this <laughs> product? Yeah, yeah. So if we can try to imagine the context in which this image appeared, this is an image that right now takes up the entirety of my book cover, but at the time was an image that was maybe about a quarter of a page or less in Life magazine. And it was accompanied by other images that showed a house, a big suburban house being engulfed in this same smoke or fog. Another image that showed a farm where the crops were being dusted with this same smoke or fog. And it's quite clear that the companies and interests that made DDT and the technologies that were being used to spray it wanted to capture as much of the consumer market as possible. So if you were somebody who was able or fortunate enough to be able to buy your own post-war suburban home, DDT was the chemical for you. If you were a farmer or working on a farm, DDT was the chemical for you. If you were somebody who was gonna be going to the beach or who was gonna be ogling people at the beach, <laughs> you know, a young person just getting started out in their, their adult lives, DDT was the chemical for you. And it's so interesting to me that they used even sex to sell <laughs> this post-war consumer commodity. And to me, it's just an indication that they were looking at every last American as a potential customer for this chemical and they succeeded by selling it in every way imaginable hmm. you describe the story of ddt in three acts war hero pariah and exception explain what each of these three acts sure so ddt as i mentioned just a moment ago was first used in the second world war it had been developed actually as a chemical in the late 19th century, but it wasn't until the 1930s that chemical companies began looking really intently for new forms of pesticides that would be effective against insect pests in agriculture, but also by the time World War II broke out, insect pests that were disabling and infecting soldiers and troops fighting in the war. So in the late 1930s, a 
chemical company in Switzerland took this old compound DDT off the shelf and realized it was really effective against some agricultural pests. They decided to share this chemical with pretty much everybody in the world. And it was US scientists who studied it and realized very quickly that it appeared to be a non-toxic way of killing bugs. And so they quickly put it to use in the war, spraying initially just soldiers and troops and their barracks, but then entire islands were sprayed with the chemical where American troops were fighting in the South Pacific and in the Mediterranean. The US Army flew planes overhead and the planes had bomb bays that had been outfitted with tanks to hold DDT and DDT was sprayed from above and rained down on these islands. And they did that to kill insects like mosquitoes, which spread diseases like malaria, dengue, and other infectious diseases that could sometimes, in some cases, kill more soldiers than, than combat itself. So DDT ended up taking a lot of credit for the Allies' victory at the end of that war. And it came home as a war hero. A so, and, and to give it its due, it was really, really good at wiping mm -hmm. out insects. It was really good. It could clear an entire island of insects. And people who used it in the field were just absolutely wowed that it was so effective and that you could spray it and it didn't seem to make any people sick. This was different from things that we used to use or had been using before to kill insects, which contained compounds like copper, lead, and arsenic, which everybody knew were poisonous. DDT didn't seem to be poisonous to people. And that was part of why it was considered such a miracle. So and it returns as a war hero. It's uh, the the unseen uh, member of the ticker tape parades. Yes. <laughs> um, and then what happens? Yeah, and it comes home a war hero. Um, there's an episode in here, which maybe we can talk about later, where in which its heroicism only increases after the war because of its use here in the U.S. and public health and agriculture. But from the get-go, there are a handful of scientists and also just citizens who start regarding DDT with skepticism. Some of them are government scientists who had been asked to test DDT during the war. They start recording some of their reservations about DDT that it's accumulating in the fat of animals, in particular in their milk and their breast milk. And they have good reason to believe this is happening in humans too. Well, over the next two decades, more and more scientists start accumulating evidence of two things, DDT's effects on the human body, but more evidence on DDT's effects on animals living in the wild. In particular, birds, and beneficial insects. So by the time we get to the late 1960s, there's a lot of kind of popular concern that DDT's widespread use is linked to two things, the decimation of wildlife and possibly chronic disease in people. There isn't good solid epidemiological evidence that it's causing harm in people at this point. Everything is still kind of sort of preliminary evidence, but the evidence of harm to birds is really, really strong. And so what happens by the early 1970s to make a very long story short is the new environmental movement that emerges in the 1960s 
makes a DDT ban, a nationwide ban, one of its earliest objectives. And they win that ban by the early 1970s, in part by capitalizing on the public's existing fears about DDT's effects on wildlife, but also on human health. So by 1972, DDT is banned. It's public enemy number one, as I put it. Everybody thinks by this point, it's one of the most toxic chemicals ever. It's ironic really, because there were so many other more toxic chemicals, including pesticides that were being used at that time. Some of them had been banned quietly. Some of them were only banned after DDT was banned with far less fanfare than that we gave DDT when we bid farewell to it. So um, I, I'm going to interrupt the, the trio of uh, characters here, War Hero, Pariah, and Exception, uh, because we don't get to the banning of DDT without talking about Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. Sure. Um, this is the 60th anniversary of Silent Spring. So explain who Rachel Carson was and what Silent Spring was and, and the impact that it had. Sure. Yeah. So Rachel Carson was initially uh, a scientist, a wildlife scientist working for the U.S. government who had dreams of writing. And eventually she began writing press materials and reports for the federal government um, and then transitioned to writing popular articles and books for the American public. And she was well known for two books that she had published in the 1950s. Um, that mostly focused on the ocean and that really made her famous as a nature writer. While she was working on those books, she was aware of a lot of the concerns about the new pesticides and other chemicals that had been developed and then widely marketed after the Second World War. And she had tried to pitch an article about one of these pesticides, DDT, because she had heard too that it was harmful to wildlife, which scientists knew early on, and that there were broader concerns about its long-term toxicity. She couldn't get any magazines to buy that article, but eventually she ended up writing a whole book about it. Um, and she published three very long excerpts from that book in The New Yorker in 1962. And that was the summer of 1962. And in the fall of 1962, those articles came out in their final form, the book known as Silent Spring, which detailed all of the toxic effects of the new synthetic pesticides that had been developed and then again marketed after the war. And not only that, but she went really deep into both the known toxic effects and some of the long-term effects that scientists were still trying to unravel and understand. In particular, she had a really powerful chapter that speculated that these chemicals, and DDT was one that she spent a lot of time discussing, were linked to growing incidence of cancer. At the time, in the 1950s and early 1960s, cancer, heart disease, and other chronic diseases were eclipsing infectious diseases of the pre-war period as the top public health concerns for Americans and as the top causes of death. And in Carson's mind, looking at all the scientific evidence, it seemed to her very likely that DDT, 
among these other synthetic compounds were contributing to increasing rates of cancer. In particular, she was concerned about cancer in children who were exposed when they were young. Silent Spring, published in 1962, tapped into these kind of widespread simmering concerns that different groups among the public had had about DDT for some time. Everybody from the government scientists to farm workers to small farmers who had been insisting that they were witnessing firsthand harms of these chemicals. Carson finally documented everything, published it in a book that was widely read and that got the attention of lawmakers at the state level all the way up to Washington, D.C., who began to look into DDT's harms. It really began a decade of activity that some would say culminated in that 1972 ban of DDT 10 years later. Why do you think, I mean, there are many books that expose bad things. Um, it strikes me a few weeks ago on this program, we had Ralph Nader on. Of course, his he comes into the public consciousness with the publication of a book, Unsafe at Any Speed, um, not long after Silent Spring. And was this kind of a moment when questioning corporate claims about the safety of you know, new technologies, which until this time had only been hailed as part of what made America great, um, put her in that the context of that moment? Yeah, that's such a good question. So one of the things that's important to know about Silent Spring is that she begins this book with a fable. She imagines a town that has gone silent, where all the birds have stopped singing, all the wildlife has stopped you know, it's, it's daily activities and where a kind of white powder falls from the sky and lands and settles on everything. And she's deliberately making a connection in this early, early part of the book between pesticides and radioactive fallout, which the public had been widely fearful of um, since the Second World War. Those fears were very real, very tangible. So one thing that she was able to do was make a connection between exposure to pesticides and exposure to something that was known to be harmful and known to have long-term effects on human health. But the other thing that she was able to do was she was able to tap into fears about pesticides that had been articulated in all these different ways and simply hadn't quite coalesced. Back in the early 1950s, Congress held really visible hearings on the safety of the food supply because of widespread concerns that there were not just synthetic pesticides, but also preservatives and other chemicals used in processing and packaging that were making their way into American foods. And people were concerned at the time as a consequence might be harming human health. These hearings in the early 19, 1950s actually led to legislative changes that happened very slowly in the late 1950s. There were new laws passed in 54 and 57, for instance, strengthening federal regulation over the food supply. But there was still this feeling that there was more to be done and that there was more that the American public didn't know. What Carson's book did was say, yes, you're right. There are things that haven't been shared with us and here they are. And the, one of the really powerful things that she did was say, 
Here are scientists who have said, we need to be aware of these hazards and we need to be looking more carefully into these risks and we haven't done it yet. So one of the things that she did so powerfully was take scientific voices and show how they were being silenced or drowned out by corporate interests who had, of course, the primary objective of selling these new technologies. Did Rachel Carson pay a price for what she did? You know, it's a really good question. Rachel Carson, as I mentioned before, went out really on a limb in making a claim that these chemicals were linked to cancer, because at the time, we really didn't have strong scientific evidence that they were. At the very same time that she was writing Silent Spring, she was battling one health problem after another, including ultimately breast cancer. And she hid it from the public because she wrote this in her letters to friends. She knew that if the chemical companies heard that she had breast cancer, they would attack her publicly and say that she had no basis making a claim that the chemicals were behind her own disease, that she was completely biased and lacking in any amount of objectivity needed to tell a story like the one that she told. So the real price that she paid, I feel, was having to live with this enormous secret and suffer really in isolation with just the company and confidence of a few friends who saw her through this incredibly painful time. She was, even without that diagnosis being made public, she was pilloried by the chemical companies after Silent Spring came out. And they labeled her with every epithet they could get into print. They called her things like a spinster, kind of implying that because she was unmarried and over a certain age, that her opinions weren't worth anything. They called her a communist to, to try to turn public sentiment against her. And they did this because they knew that her message was resonating with readers. And they believed that if they could attack her personally, that would turn at least some of her readers away from her. It didn't succeed. <laughs> so um, let's return to the uh, the three acts of the life of DDT. We've talked about War Hero, uh, then Pariah when it gets banned in the early 70s, and now a new life. Talk about the return of DDT. Yeah. So to talk about the return of DDT, we've got to sort of jump from the 1970s all the way to the late 1990s um, turn of the new millennium. After 1972, DDT is banned and it's known again as one of the most toxic chemicals ever. It's thought in the public mind to be linked to cancer simply because one, Rachel Carson's book had put that idea out there. Environmentalists had widely popularized the idea. And three, cancer was still a concern for the public when DDT was banned in the 70s. So we left that decade with this strong public idea, a publicly held idea that there was a connection between the two. It wasn't yet proven though. So what happens, which is so interesting, is that after the ban, DDT 
continues to be studied, not just by chemists and toxicologists, but increasingly also by epidemiologists who are interested in answering the specific question, what long-term health effects are caused or can be traced back to exposure to DDT when healthy. Epidemiologists look at breast cancer, they look at a long list of other forms of cancer. And in the 1980s, particularly the late 1980s, they begin publishing studies that on the one hand, start to link DDT to forms of cancer like liver cancer, for instance, and on the other hand, produce less certain evidence linking it to breast cancer. But the simple fact that there's now epidemiological evidence showing an association actually turns more and more attention to DDT and cancer. By the late 1980s, we also see in the US the beginning of a new social movement, the breast cancer movement, in which women start arguing that breast cancer has been ignored and under-researched. And one of the things that breast cancer activists ask for is more scientific attention to synthetic chemicals and the disease. So we enter the 1990s with a handful of studies that come out for the first time linking DDT to breast cancer, joining other studies that are linking DDT to other forms of cancer and other forms of chronic disease. This is happening, however, at a time when it's becoming apparent at a global level that malaria, this infamous disease that's long been wiped out in the US and is caused by mosquitoes spreading a parasite, Malaria is on the rise in some of the poorest parts of the globe, including in particular sub-Saharan Africa. Now, this trend with malaria attracts the attention of scientists who begin to start talking about what we need to do to control malaria in these parts of the globe. Some of them begin to speculate, maybe it's time to bring back DDT. And they begin having really a scientific debate or conversation about this. What happens at the same time, however, is that a handful of free market think tanks catch wind of this scientific debate. And they sell this idea, this debate to the tobacco companies. And this is where things get really kind of crazy. <laughs> what they say is, look, here's this story about DDT the chemical that the US and other Western industrialized nations banned back in the 1970s, but it still has a role to play protecting people from malaria in poorer countries, what was then still called the quote unquote third world. They say, let's take this DDT story and popularize it, share it with everybody because this story is proof of a couple of things. One liberals should not be entrusted with global health policy because they're going to make decisions that protect their own health at the expense of the health of people living in poorer nations. They sell this argument to the tobacco companies in particular because in the late 1990s, the tobacco companies are facing added regulation at a global level and also a kind of 
public pushback against tobacco in the at the domestic level here in the U.S., where all of a sudden there's a lot of concern about secondhand smoke, a bunch of uh, cities and states passing new laws restricting smoking. In other words, there's a shrinking of the, the tobacco market. And so the tobacco industry decides to fund this campaign to, quote, bring DDT back. They were never interested in bringing back DDT. They simply wanted to sell the idea that too much government regulation was a bad idea and that that malaria was a bigger global health problem and public health problem than tobacco and cigarette smoke ever were. And hence the phrase, pick your poison, yes. um, <laughs> or choosing the lesser of two evils. Your book is a story about DDT that isn't really a story just about DDT. It's a larger story about how PR companies and industry discovered that undermining science could be very good for business. So, and this is an era that, uh, you know, we're still feeling the repercussions of it uh, today. And I should say, you know, not just the, the kind of vapor trails, but we are engulfed by this movement. So what did they learn in fighting, in, in bringing back DDT about how to undermine science and what it could get you? This is such an interesting question, and you're so right. This is a book about DDT, but it's also a book about the forces that undermine public trust in science generally. And I was so interested to find in the course of my research that these forces that we feel very familiar with today go way, way, way back. I talked briefly about how the tobacco companies were involved in this campaign to bring DDT back in the late 1990s and early 2000s. But of course, well before that, the tobacco companies were involved in DDT's story in a different way. They actually supported the ban on DDT in the 1970s and were operating behind the scenes to try to get DDT banned then because European countries were limiting the amount of DDT allowed on all imports, including cigarettes and tobacco. So they wanted DDT banned when it was in, when it served their bottom line and they wanted it back when that served their bottom line. But even before the tobacco companies, the chemical companies were trying to figure out how to defend DDT back in the 1950s when Congress was holding those hearings on the effects of chemicals in the food supply. So way back in the 1950s, the chemical companies had employed these PR firms that essentially began to sketch out what's now known as a playbook on how to defend your product, product and undermine public faith in evidence that your product might be causing harm. And this involves things like casting doubt on the scientists who are carrying out or talking about the hazards of a particular chemical or technology. It involves courting journalists and encouraging them to see your side of the story and to cover your side of the story. It also involves creating debate, scientific debate, where there is none or making a debate seem consequential, even though scientific consensus falls almost entirely on one particular side of the issue. These are just a handful of the strategies that are used to this day. And, and and how have those been used today in the realm of 
arguments about climate change, about vaccine fears, about COVID denial, anti-masking. How does it work? And of course, it doesn't escape me that DDT kind of rides the wave of unquestioning faith in science in the 50s. You know, the space race, uh, this is what will save us, trust in chemicals, uh, have women in bathing suits hawk your your chemical product, your pesticide. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they're trying to essentially cut the legs out from under the very, um, you know, effort that they came to popularity on. Definitely. Absolutely. Because as you point out, they needed the public to trust in science back in the 1950s. And later, some of these companies needed the public to trust certain science. And this is kind of where we've gotten today. If you look at the last 60, 70 years or so, what you see is that to speak in really kind of generalizing terms, we've shifted from a country that appeared to trust in science and institutions of science to one that has been encouraged to question everything to the point where if you want to question something, you can readily find the evidence or justification you need to, to hold those questions close to your heart. To kind of add a layer to this, let me go back to the 1950s for a second, because I think today it's quite clear to us that if you're hearing that there are, say, risks associated with a, a certain technology, like a vaccine, we know that you really need to look closely at who's sharing those risks, what their interests are, what their values are, and why they hold those risks. But if we rewind back to the 1950s, what I saw was the beginning of a trend that ran alongside the trend of companies and corporations controlling the narrative. And that was a trend of our kind of social hierarchies determining whose concerns were heard and whose weren't, and whose beliefs were trusted and whose beliefs were disregarded. To use sort of one case as an illustrative example, there were a number of small farmers in Southeast Georgia who insisted that DDT was killing their bees and their chicks, and they felt making them and their families sick. And as they turned to local authorities, the local authorities tried to investigate, had no information and tried to get it from the chemical companies. But instead of telling these farmers, many of whom were women, you know, were looking into it, what they did was they dismissed them on the basis of gender. And we could see the same pattern taking place with race in the 1950s. In other words, if you were questioning a technology or scientific information that was put out there as safe or true, and you were of a minority or oppressed group, your identity was used as a way of saying, look, you just need to trust the science because you don't understand, you don't know. It was this very patronizing attitude. What this has done over time is really created these rifts, these really strong divisions that have, if we kind of follow the story all the way up to this day, left us with a society where 
our fabric is really broken. We've had such a long pattern of struggling to know who to trust that at this point, we don't know where to look. And at the same time, there are all of these other forces telling us, oh, just believe this, or oh, just believe that, believe that this vaccine is harmful or that you don't need to wear a mask. And all of that information gets taken in and mapped onto our other experiences and values that come from how we move through this society and our experience in this culture. And that influences how people either choose to believe scientific information and accept it, or find themselves overwhelmed by doubt and, and concern that they haven't been told the whole truth. So when you see the current iteration of this, where in response to the COVID pandemic, um, we see people trotting out veterinary drugs like ivermectin as a completely unproven cure, but this should be used above anything. We see, you know, hashtag fire Fauci, um, you know, let's attack the experts, the scientists. And you see President Trump uh, asking about injecting bleach when he's surrounded by the country's top scientists who know that this is madness and quackery. And of yeah. course, you have a, a death toll in different parts of the country where people are questioning, doubting, and simply refusing the treatments and the science. So what do you see as somebody who's kind of has the long view as you look at today's debates? One of the things that I see is that we've really equipped ourselves with the narratives that we need to sustain those choices today. And it's been so interesting to me to see how DDT, which has been banned for decades, um, and which young people today, probably most of them haven't even heard of, is still used as this example of how scientists got it wrong in the past, so they can't be trusted in the present. And this is one of these stories that brings us to the point where we are today, where people can say, look at that, that happened. And so that's why I'm only going to trust this, or I'm going to reject that. I'm going to take ivermectin or, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask or whatever it is. We have over the last 60 years, narrativized science. We've created all of these stories about it and the stories are way too oversimplified. And by doing that, we've done it at our own peril because we've created a bunch of stories that have been, you know, essentially turned into fodder for, you know, whichever camp or side you stand on. Where we are today, I believe, is at a point where we've lost sight of the fact that science is a process. It's about experimentation. It's about asking questions about the world we live in coming up with answers that make sense for the moment, and then adjusting those answers when the moment or the situation changes. But because we've lost sight of science as a process, we've also failed to see that when we produce scientific knowledge and when we interpret scientific findings, we do so within the context of our own values. Science is not a value-free practice. It is not inherently objective. It can be objective in parts and in practice, but it is always, always carrying all of our biases, preoccupations, worldviews, priorities. And those things mean 
that when we put out any scientific truth as truth, it is not a simple firm, it is, I should maybe <laughs> condition this a little bit. It is not always a simple, firm, unchanging, evergreen piece of information. It is something that makes sense for a certain group at a certain moment in time that helps us live our lives and that we can adjust in response to, you know, changes in the future. So one of the other things that you have written about, as I mentioned, your other book is Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization. Uh, this is also very much on the front burner now. Um, immunizations have been hailed as what are getting us through this pandemic uh, by reducing the severity of symptoms of COVID. And it's still the subject of intense conflict uh, with an anti-vax movement that has essentially become a a litmus test for your political, um, you know, predilections. Could you give us, and, and we're now going to move into the era of will, you know, of, of requiring immunizations. Will COVID vaccines become part of routine childhood immunizations, for example? I wonder if you could just give us a brief history of when vaccines were first required as a public health measure. Sure, yeah, this will be a very brief history. There's more than 200 years of, of vaccine history to sum up. But one of the first things I'll say is that vaccination has been controversial as long as vaccination has been in existence, but it's been more controversial since our earliest efforts to make vaccines required or mandatory for some type of participation in public life. And in the US, we began doing that in the 19th century, early to mid 19th century. But mostly what it looked like then was we equipped local cities and municipalities with the authority to decide if they wanted to make vaccination mandatory um, and when and for how long. And, and what were the first vaccinations? The first vaccination was a vaccine against the disease smallpox, and it was enormously controversial. And it was when, controversial when was that? For well over 100 years. It was first developed in the late 1700s um, and was used more and more over the 1800s, the 19th century. And the earliest forms of it were made by taking um, pus from a cow that was infected with cowpox and putting that pus into an incision in human skin. And that was how you were vaccinated against smallpox. In some cases, people who were vaccinated were then used as a source of pus to vaccinate other people. That was called arm-to-arm -arm vaccination. And it was risky. It sometimes could transmit other infections and sometimes those infections were fatal. It was also very, very effective and protected people from a horrific and fatal disease. Um, but people had their own resistance to the vaccine in the 19th century, and those forms of resistance have not left us. They are still with us today. Some of them were political, um, people arguing that they should have the right to decide when to take the vaccine and when to have their family members vaccinated, and that that right belonged with the family and not with the state. Um, other objections were religious and others were simply founded on fears of risks. So 
we've had those for, you know, well over 150 years now. When did childhood immunizations become the norm? That's a great question, too. And when we first began vaccinating with smallpox, we vaccinated adults and children alike. There were some new vaccines that came out at the turn of the 20th century, some of which were given preferentially to children like the diphtheria vaccine, others of which were used for both children and adults. And it wasn't really until the development of a vaccine against polio that we really began to think of vaccination as a practice primarily for children, something to protect the whole population by keeping children healthy and safe in childhood. And that's um, the 1950s. That's the 1950s, yeah, yeah. And we really have lived in the era of childhood immunization um, since then, but I would say in the last decade, decade and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer, we've been shifting more toward vaccination across the life course. So not just for children, but for all adults, um, depending on the vaccine. And it really was with COVID that we began to flip the script and shift away, in my view, from childhood vaccination and the system of state mandates that were used to make childhood vaccination um, required and enforceable. We're in a different moment now. And to me, it remains to be seen whether COVID vaccination will simply be slotted back into that pattern of childhood vaccination, or if we're going to see something that looks very different, more like annual flu vaccines, for instance, which are given to both children and adults, but through different mechanisms. But are not mandatory flu vaccinations. Right. Yeah, exactly. The backlash, the anti-vax movement of today is now leading to an overall reduction in childhood immunizations. Um, it's a backlash against all immunizations. What um, what do you think is the solution? I know you've written about the pros and cons of exemptions. And uh, here in Vermont, exemptions, the, the exemption loophole has been greatly reduced. Um, the ability to use exemptions has been reduced because as the uh, requirements increase, the rise in exemptions, they're, you know, whether they're called philosophical exemptions or religious exemptions, end up being exploited. Um, so talk about the role of exemptions and your view on that. Yeah, so exemptions were first introduced in the very, very, very tail end of the 19th century um, by what were then described, self-described anti-vaccine groups. These were groups that were opposed to compulsory or mandatory smallpox vaccination. And to me, that's what anti-vaccine means. It means being opposed to all compulsory vaccination. Um, and for a long time, that just meant smallpox vaccination. But these groups came up with exemptions as a way of tempering the laws that were being introduced to make smallpox vaccination mandatory. They introduced conscience of, of exemptions, of exemptions that allowed people to say, I don't believe in vaccination or I object to it and therefore I am exempt from this requirement. They also included medical exemptions. And interestingly, these exemptions 
became a really important political tool allowing vaccine mandates to go into place from the late 19th century through the almost 100 years, the late 20th century. In other words, as vaccine mandates were introduced, particularly when they were introduced at the state level in legislatures, when they met with opposition, exemptions to the mandates were the best ways of diffusing that opposition and getting the mandates themselves passed. Um, the mandates were largely seen as, as a kind of tool that was used to encourage the widespread vaccination of children. In many cases, they were not enforced. They were most strongly enforced in the 60s and 70s. And interestingly, after that period of enforcement, we saw a new wave of exemptions um, come into existence where groups that had been accustomed to lax enforcement said, well, hold on a second. There are other states that have these exemptions. We want the same ones. And so by the early 2000s, there were a, a, a number of new states that added philosophical exemptions. To make a very long story short, we retra started retracting those philosophical exemptions with measles. And now, again, I think COVID has pushed us to a new moment where we need to think about what we want this legislative landscape to look like going forward. I think people looking at the landscape of today sometimes think, you know, this is crazy. We, we you know, we have a vaccine that greatly reduced the suffering around this pandemic. And yet there is this very vibrant anti-vax movement that says, don't take it. Can you, how do you compare having studied previous, you know, anti-science, anti-vax movements? How do you compare today with what we've seen in the past? Is it, is it kind of wilder and more difficult to control today? Or has it always been like this? I will say that it hasn't always been like this, but it has been like this in the past. It has been less visible to us in the past. There have been instances you could go back and look at early 20th century Massachusetts and the fight over mandatory smallpox vaccination at that time was so heated and it would look a lot like what we see today. Um, at the same time, here in my hometown of Berkeley, California, the university tried to pass a smallpox mandate and students dropped out in protest with local anti-vaccine groups cheering them on loudly. The rest of the country didn't hear about that. That was one of the main differences between then and now, among other differences. But the short answer to your question is, yes, we've been here before with people deciding that there was something that they held more dear than the vaccine itself. In these cases that I've just mentioned, it was the personal liberty combined with um, a distrust of what the vaccine was or was capable of. And I think we see something similar with COVID vaccination today. We began COVID vaccination with the promise that the vaccine was going to deliver us from this pandemic. It definitely changed the course of the pandemic, but it didn't end it. We still don't quite know if we're at the end and one variant after another have complicated the project of vaccination and in a way 
given fuel to those who are predisposed to be skeptical of the vaccine to begin with. What is your biggest concern about today's anti-science movement? My biggest concern about it is that we are failing to see areas of common ground and that by labeling certain people or groups as anti-science, we start conversations have, having already shut down any hope of actually hearing each other um, and finding agreement. I think that when people are labeled anti-science or anti-vaccine, it sets up the expectation that they're not going to accept anything. This has been one of my biggest concerns really for the last 10 years, that there were far more people who were vaccine skeptical or hesitant than anti-vaccine. And that among all of those hesitant and skeptical people, there were many, many, many who were getting some vaccines or who were open to having conversations about the value of vaccination. But the second you put them into the category of anti-vaccine, you kind of cast them in a very different light and you set yourself up. I mean, if you consider yourself pro-vaccine or on a different side of the story than the anti-vaccine group, you set yourself up to not get anywhere, to not move forward. So my hope is that we can kind of let go of some of these labels, look for common ground, acknowledge people's fears and the sources of their hesitation, and talk honestly about the benefits and the risks of vaccine, about what they're capable of, and about the limits of their capabilities. They're incredibly powerful tools, and they produce lots of public health benefits. And we can also say that in the same sentence that we can say, and there are things that we don't know about them, but that we hope to figure out through added study. Well, uh, Elena Konis, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.